Hey, this is Bill, also known as Mr. Hillary Clinton. Whenever I'm in Davis, I always listen to 90.3 FM KDVS. You know, I wasn't happy about what happened last November, but to be honest with you, I was not looking forward to being First Lady. This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. Alexander Hamilton has become a person of great interest to the American public in recent years. We have always found him to be a singular figure. After all, his face has looked back at us from paper money since 1862, and our $10 bill has borne his image since 1928. We were taught in school that he was an influential founding father, and his strange ending, in a duel with the Vice President of the United States, no less, always stood him apart from the other men in powdered wigs who started this country. But in recent years, a musical titled Hamilton has been the hottest ticket on Broadway, and he's being looked at all over again. The life of Alexander Hamilton is indeed a remarkable story, and one we would do well to examine. To do that, we are fortunate today to have the opportunity to speak with a biographer whose book has just been released. Martha Brokenbro is the author of Alexander Hamilton, Revolutionary, a fascinating look at a figure who lived up to the ideal that a person of talent and hard work, and perhaps a bit of luck, could accomplish amazing things. The reader of Alexander Hamilton, Revolutionary, is sure to be surprised at just how much he was able to accomplish and how much adversity he had to overcome. So, let us examine the life of this man of unusual talent and forcefulness. It is our great pleasure to be able to say, welcome to Radio Parallax, Martha Brokenbro. Thanks so much for having me. Well, Martha, although he was one of America's most important founding fathers, Hamilton began life with many disadvantages. Can you talk about his difficult start? So many disadvantages. So the the primary one is probably that his parents weren't married to each other. And you can imagine, you know, in the 1700s that people would frown on such a birth. So he had a brother, and the two of them were called whore children. Um, Alexander Hamilton was a very, very smart kid, but he wasn't allowed to go to school. He fortunately had a pretty big collection of books, and that was certainly influential in his intellectual development. He also had other tough stuff happen to him. His father left the family. His mother was working uh, at a grocery that she owned. Alexander kept the books for her. She died when he was just a boy, and after that, he went to work for a shipping company. And uh, that turned out to be a bit of good luck for him. He was really talented at it and definitely smart enough to manage the adults he encountered. What's more, um, the West Indies, where he was born, this is one of the financial hubs of the world. This is where sugar raised, um, grown by enslaved people was sent to England. And uh, so this is where Alexander Hamilton had his first glimpse and his, his first way of understanding international trade. Um, 
Hurricanes have been in the news a lot lately. Alexander Hamilton experienced one of those when he was a kid. He thought he was going to die. Um, this, at the time, was the biggest hurricane measured in the area. I don't know how it would compare to what the people of the Caribbean are enduring these days, but um, it was awful. And he wrote a letter about it to his father, who had left him. And he, he was, um, people were so impressed by this letter, which was published anonymously in a newspaper, that they wanted to find out more about the author. And so that letter, which came out of a horrible hurricane, was the thing that propelled him to the United States to get educated. Yeah, I guess they, they set up a scholarship fund for him on the little island of Nevis, and then do what they can to open doors for him once he is set off to prep school in New York. And, and I guess they do manage to get a few doors open for him. They did. And you would think that, um, you know, a kid who had grown up in a place that was so warm he didn't always need to wear shoes would have a little bit of culture shock landing in New York, um, you know, which was the second biggest city in any of the colonies at the time. Philadelphia was bigger. Um, but he didn't have culture shock. He did just fine. It was a freezing cold winter. Rivers froze over, but um, Alexander Hamilton made his way really well. He finished up essentially prep school in New Jersey and then enrolled at King's College, which became Columbia. Um, he did try to get into Princeton, which Aaron Burr had gone to, um, but he was turned down because he wanted to blast through Princeton at lightning speed, and, and they didn't think that was a good idea. Well, young Hamilton gets involved with people who favor breaking away from England, as in the title of your book notes. He becomes a revolutionary, and his gift for expression soon makes him a pamphleteer for the revolution. And when the cause turns bloody in 1775, Alexander starts to learn how to become a military man, and he works pretty hard at it. He sure did. Um, you know, as, as soon as um, blood was shed at Lexington and Concord. He and other students at King's College put on uniforms, and they started drilling. They had a former British Army officer teaching them, but Alexander did what Alexander always did, and this was pick up books, and he decided that he would teach himself how to be a soldier. You know, one of the things that I think that we often don't appreciate is that the United States hasn't always had a massive incredibly powerful military. In fact, way back then, um, you know, the Continental Army was really something pieced together. There were state militias, um, but which one took precedence? Which soldiers got paid first? These questions had not been answered, and there was also, you know, not a whole lot of way, um, ways for people to become skilled. Some of our best military leaders, uh, like Nathaniel Green, were self-taught, and, and Alexander Hamilton taught himself how to become an artillery captain, which was his first real role in the Revolutionary War. Well, I, I was intrigued to note that, um, yeah, I guess dating back to his days in the Caribbean, he, he dreamed of achieving great things. And back in 1775, the Continental Congress uh, appoints George Washington to lead the army, and, and Hamilton distinguishes himself in stealing some cannons from a fort. And he gets noticed, but he turns down the chance to become an aide-de-camp to a brigadier general because he doesn't want a desk job. That's right. He viewed... It, it, Alexander Hamilton was motivated by um, the search for glory and honor. And he believed that this was best found on the battlefield, not pushing papers for a general. 
And so he resisted his first few invitations to be the aide um, aid de camp of generals. When Washington came to call, though, he finally said yes, and it could have been because he spent a pretty miserable winter um, really ill. He was bedridden for a while. And uh, so after that, when Washington invited him to become an aide, he did join up and served that way for the next four years. Well, this kind of is his big breakthrough. Uh, I guess one can argue that in January of 1777, uh, he becomes a member of Washington's staff. And and really, I think you could say his, his fortune is linked to General and later President Washington for the next couple of decades. I think it's true, and I think both men benefited substantially from the relationship. And, and you know, it was not just Alexander Hamilton having Washington on his side, as the musical puts it. Um, Hamilton was really also on Washington's side and was so smart and so diligent and such a good writer that he, um, he, he really did a lot of things that Washington wasn't great at. And as you think about why this really um, close and sometimes contentious relationship might have developed. You have to wonder, is it because Alexander Hamilton really didn't have a father and George Washington didn't have biological sons? Who knows, but it certainly felt like a father-son relationship at times to me. Well, you note that um, that Again, Hamilton does prove he has talent working for Washington. Uh, uh, he helps Baron von Steuben write the nation's first military manual. In every respect, he is the right-hand man of, of George Washington, involved in all sorts of things, trying to get things done. Uh, he gets a lot of lessons on how things can go wrong, how egos get in the way, how not getting a promotion can make you mad. And, it, and at one point, he, he quits. Yes, he did quit. Um, George Washington, who was a big man, he was about six foot three, and Alexander Hamilton wasn't. He he was mm, something like five foot seven, which was a little bit shorter than the average man of the day. Um, Washington stood on top of the stairs and scolded Alexander Hamilton for keeping him waiting. Hamilton had been on his way to meet with Washington and the Marquis de Lafayette. Um, who's really one of my favorite revolutionary characters, a young Frenchman who did all sorts of things to help the Americans win, but he had a habit of, when he was talking to you, holding on to you. So he was holding (laughs) on to Alexander, who couldn't leave, and then George Washington chewed him out, and Alexander Hamilton had had it. Washington had been in a grumpy mood. They were in close quarters, um, and so, you know, Hamilton just decided, that's it, I quit, and he did for a while. Well, you know, your book is filled with details that if I learned them in school, I, I, I guess I subsequently forgot them. Uh, and, and one that really struck me was that Hamilton, after this little falling out with his commander, wants to get back in charge again, get a military command. And finally, he gets one along with the Marquis de Lafayette, and he joins the army forces that are attacking General Cornwallis, who the French fleet have bottled up at Yorktown. And Hamilton does play an important military role in, in that British surrender. Well, he it played not only an important role, but the way he played it had been informed by his time on Washington's staff. Basic things like shoes for soldiers, not all soldiers had shoes, and here these guys were going to have to be on a very long march. And so that was one of the first things Hamilton did when he got his command was buy them shoes. 
Um, and, you know, then he and the Marquis de Lafayette, they, everybody raced down to Yorktown. They knew that Cornwallis was in a vulnerable position. It was a place that Washington himself had declined to camp there because you could easily get trapped. Um, and a British general, was, uh, Sir Henry Clinton, was supposed to provide backup for Cornwallis, and he didn't get to it on time. And so all these uh, um, elements were coming together for the Americans. They raced south. They you know, worked feverishly through the night to get close to the British. They were digging trenches. And as they finally did, there were two last British redoubts, and Alexander led a group of men toward one and Lafayette toward the other. And this was the, those were the two final actions that caused the British to surrender. Well, the war is over. Hamilton goes home a hero. He resigns the military. He forsakes his wartime pay and becomes a representative of Congress. But I think listeners should be reminded at this point that after the war, the American government that we had under the Articles of Confederation was not operating very well. It, was, it had a big key failure. And that failure was that there was no provision for raising taxes. And you can see why Americans might not have embraced taxes right away. And, <laughs> and you know, in part, the Revolutionary War was fought over taxes. And, and that taxation, it wasn't huge. These were, these were relatively small amounts of money. But the principle behind it was deeply offensive because there was nobody representing the Americans in Parliament. So you know, that's what taxation without representation means. And, um, and in general, most people aren't enthusiastic payers of taxes anyway. There was no way to raise money, though, via the Articles of Confederation, and there was a big problem. The Revolutionary War caused debt for the United States, and there was a big question how that debt would be paid back. And so this was not um, something they could really resolve until there was a new constitution, and it took a while to persuade people that was necessary. We're speaking with author Martha Brokenbro about her book, Alexander Hamilton, Revolutionary. Martha, by 1785, it seems pretty clear to Hamilton this government is not working right. He writes a, In July, he writes a resolution calling the Articles of the Confederation defective. And you note in the book that it's kind of about this time Thomas Jefferson starts presenting an opposing view to Hamilton. Jefferson thinks the new government is not too weak, but it, it's, it's too strong. And we see you know, some of these ongoing debates today, how much power is, is concentrated in the federal government, what can states do? And, you know, this is not just a right-left thing. Um, you know, it, ha it happens, um, it, you know, in both directions. Sometimes left-leaning legislation can be enacted at the state level, sometimes right. Um, and so this is an old, old question, you know, that goes back all the way to the founding of the country. And when you look at Jefferson and Hamilton, in many ways, they were opposites. Thomas Jefferson was born to wealth in Virginia, which was a southern state, a state whose economy was dependent on enslaving people. Alexander Hamilton was born poor. Um, he arrived in New York, which while people, um, New Yorkers did own slaves, Aaron Burr did, for example, um, Alexander Hamilton's in-laws did, for example, the economy wasn't based on the labor of slaves in quite the same way. And so Southerners had a vested interest 
in keeping this institution alive um, and in, you know, the authority of their state to keep it legal. Um, they also had a vested interest in an agricultural economy as opposed to a more diversified economy, which Alexander Hamilton favored. And so the men were definitely um, ideological rivals. They also behaved really differently. Alexander Hamilton was voluble. He made his opinions known. <laughs> and Jefferson uh, was a little bit more um, indirect. You know, some people say that you know, he wove spider webs and ensnared people <laughs> in them. Uh-huh. Um, and so it's, it's interesting seeing the differences between those men. And uh, you can certainly see philosophical differences in our leaders today and and how they bring them about. And I just think this is one of the most interesting things about history is that there's nothing that's particularly new um, and lots that's particularly interesting. I remember in high school having many discussions with the history teachers where they sort of summarize Hamilton as having a dim view of the masses of people, the masses are asses, where Jefferson believed in the common man, which is, which is still resonating in the country. But uh, It's still resonating, but can I just say that's total baloney? <laughs> yes, you can. <laughs> I will say, I, I say, hoo-ha, baloney. So, you know, the common man, let's just take Alexander Hamilton's wartime service versus Jefferson's. Yes. Jefferson, born to privilege, didn't have to learn to become a soldier. And in fact, um, his... His running away was one of the reasons that Benedict Arnold was later able to take um, the capital of Virginia. Thomas Jefferson, when he was in Paris, was living the high life. You can see pictures of him in pretty, pretty wigs. He also was a bit of a louche. While we know that Alexander Hamilton was shamed for his extramarital affair, um, there's a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote to Hamilton's sister-in-law, Angelica um, Angelica, she had, he suggested that the two of them have an affair. She was married. So um, his cred as the common man <laughs> is eroded by his behavior. And, of uh-huh. course, recent research has definitively proved that he fathered many children with his enslaved girl, Sally Hemings. And I do say girl because she was 14. She was the half-sister of his dead wife, 14, he brought her to Paris, had children with her, and then enslaved them. I don't think he has great credentials <laughs> as a common man. Um, I do think that he was able to speak to certain populist tendencies well. Alexander Hamilton did say some really, really dumb things. For example, during the Constitutional Convention, and I want to set the scene for you. So, you know, we know that the Constitution was written in Philadelphia. Summer was on. It was hot. These men were wearing suits. And in order to keep the proceedings secret, which um, was a controversial move, but one that they felt would um, allow more ideas to come out, um, in order to keep it secret, they kept the windows closed. They kept the curtains drawn. And so, you know, we're talking like a hot and uncomfortable all-day-long extravaganza. And Alexander Hamilton gave a talk that lasted six hours, and it didn't go well at all. (laughs) (laughs) And one of the reasons it didn't go well is he talked about an earned aristocracy. And here's what he meant by that. He meant that people like himself who studied hard, who made sacrifices, who were, you know, loyal and principled citizens could earn their way to the upper echelons. A meritocracy. It's, that's really what he meant by that. 
And so, you know, he didn't use the right word. Um, but yeah. I think that when you look at his behavior, you can certainly, you read those words in a different light. Just like when you look at Thomas Jefferson's behavior, sure, when he came back to America, he, you know, he also was a tall man who was a little bit stooped and didn't wear a wig and, and, and everything. Um, so he, he perhaps wore the clothing of the common man. But was he? Um, you know, another thing that Jefferson believed that Hamilton didn't, Jefferson believed that black people were inferior to white people. Alexander Hamilton did not. So, again, common man credentials, you know, these beliefs and the actions they took in support of their own beliefs really, really distinguish them. Another dumb thing that Hamilton wrote um, this was shortly before his death, was that America suffers from an excess of democracy. And people really seized on that. I remember when I was taught about Hamilton, you know, he was described as being an elitist. Well, you know, that's a pretty fraught term. Um, but, it, you know, what he meant by excess of democracy is that people who didn't know better would vote for a demagogue. Well, gee, that seems awfully far-fetched, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know how that could ever happen in any country, let alone the United States. Um, and he was talking about Aaron Burr, and why did right. he think Burr was a demagogue? Um, you know, Burr didn't have fixed political principles. Burr liked winning, and Burr thought politics were fun. And so Aaron Burr did what he thought would, would help him win. Another thing about Aaron Burr that Hamilton thought made him dangerous was that his finances were a mess. Aaron Burr had inherited money from his parents. He had also worked as a high-priced lawyer, um, but he lived beyond his means. And by the time he was running for president, he was in debt, and Hamilton was very concerned that someone in that financial position could become indebted to a foreign government and, and therefore corrupted by it. Gee, no parallels to today, I could imagine. Uh, <laughs> it seems unthinkable, um, doesn't it? But yeah. uh, these, were, these were the issues then that caused so much drama. Another relationship I was not really aware of was the important link between Hamilton and James Madison. Uh, he, he joins Madison in, in Annapolis, and in an effort to repair the Articles of Confederation, they call for the Constitutional Convention, which you just mentioned, and he really works very closely with James Madison after the convention to basically sit down and write up our new Constitution. I, I'd always thought that Madison was more or less the author of our Constitution, but Hamilton was, was deeply involved, and so were other men. Lots of men were involved in the Constitution. If you want to give Madison credit for something, credit him with the Bill of Rights. But he and, and uh, Alexander Hamilton and James Madison ended up being bitter, bitter rivals. But yeah. early in their relationship, they were allies. And certainly James Madison played a pivotal role in the drafting of the Constitution. Madison was there for every moment of it. Alexander Hamilton wasn't. In fact, after his six-hour soliloquy um, <laughs> bombed, he went home in a fit of pique, and George Washington wrote to him and said, I miss you, you know, come back. Well, and Hamilton did come back, but James Madison was there. He was a scholar, and he took notes on everything that people said and every moment. And if you want to read a really interesting account, um, read Madison's notes of the Constitution. So afterward, you know, 
both Madison and Hamilton, they were among the men who signed the Constitution, also among the men who rang up a really big bar tab in Philadelphia, <laughs> celebrating it. <laughs> this is one of the things I loved. I mean, they spent so much money <laughs> on Madeira and, and bowls of punch. It was spelled bowels of punch, which really grosses me out, but there you go. Um, you, you know, they were billed for, for breaking glasses, and uh, they were also billed for their candles. So, you know, they partied by the light of candles made from a substance called spermacity, which is scraped from the skulls of sperm whales. Um, and there was not a lot of food on that bill. It was just pickles. So anyway, <laughs> wow. they, <laughs> they, they apparently knew how to party. And uh, after the convention, there was a big task ahead, and that was to get the states to ratify the Constitution. Thirteen states, nine had to say yes in order to make it the governing document of the land. And so this is where... Hamilton and Madison, and to a lesser extent, John Jay teamed up. They wanted to have another guy, Governor Morris, be um, also writing these papers. They were called the Federalist Papers. Governor Morris is, is a real kick as a founding father. He was a one-legged guy who may or may not have lost his leg escaping an angry husband. <laughs> What he's best known for, or not known for, but should be, is that preamble, the we the people part of the Constitution. Anyway, so he was a very fine writer, and he passed on the opportunity to write what became one of the you know most important and profound collections of political documents and in, in political history anywhere. Very short order. Madison and Hamilton cranked out all these essays. Some they wrote on their own, some they wrote together, and uh, this was something that was really helpful in getting states to ratify the Constitution. Well, they do ratify the Constitution, and in fact, uh, all 13 states do eventually sign on, and then they have, they have an agreement for a union, but Hamilton evidently was pretty aware that things could still fall apart. So he begins lobbying George Washington to come forward and be the leader. He sends him a copy of those Federalist essays and really works on them to say, you know, you're, the, you're the man for the job. He did indeed. George Washington, I, I read some of his diary entries, the guy did not want to be president. He just, he was a farmer at heart and wanted to be back um, in, in Mount Vernon. But Alexander Hamilton persuaded him that he was exactly what the nation needed. And I think it's true. I think this was, you know, it was not just Hamilton, you know, flattering Washington, because frankly, he was still a little bit peeved at Washington, <laughs> even after the revolution. Um, but he knew that Washington had the wisdom and was respected and um, could do the job of president. And uh, so Washington did, and he was the only one to be elected twice unanimously. Well, Washington becomes president. The Constitution wasn't too specific about how some things were done, so they set a lot of precedents. Uh, and in the first cabinet, Hamilton becomes our nation's first Secretary of the Treasury and his rival Jefferson, the first Secretary of State. And they sort of wound up collaborating, but sometimes, again, disagreeing. They disagreed a lot. And it's funny because, you know, Hamilton was in favor of what he called an energetic federal government. This meant a federal government that, you know, had some power to determine the direction of the nation and its finances. Jefferson not so much. He was more of a states' rights guy, and this is why James Madison and, and Hamilton eventually split. 
Um, and I would say also George Washington's veered away from James Madison. Madison helped write his inaugural speech. Hamilton wrote um, Washington's farewell speech, and that you know shows that the relationship dynamics really had changed. Um, and you know when you look at how quickly Hamilton built up a staff, Thomas Jefferson had a tiny staff at you know the, the offices of state. I mean, even smaller than Rex Tillerson's. And uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, Alexander Hamilton pretty quickly built up a big staff. One of his first orders of business was to determine some taxation, and so taxing imports was a first source of revenue. And one of the things that Hamilton learned in the West Indies as a kid working for a shipping company was that when you tax imports, the smugglers try to sneak things past you. And so Hamilton... Um, put together a fleet of revenue cutters that became the Coast Guard. Yeah. And also, as as part of ways of patrolling the harbors and making sure there weren't smugglers, there were lighthouses, and so he was managing lighthouses and lighthouse operators, and and uh, he was really building, um, you know, some of the first departments in our federal government. And you know, something like the Coast Guard is still active today, taking care of people who are victims of hurricanes and the like. We're speaking with author Martha Brokenbro about her book, Alexander Hamilton, Revolutionary. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax on KDVS 90.3 FM. Let's take a short break.